Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 5th of February 2021. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome, Robbie. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, Morrison swimming naked, tide turns on Watchgate, and the future of banking, but not as we know it. Lisa, before we begin, just have to say a few things. One is today's show is brought to us by Specsavers. No, that's not true. I'm, my age means I need glasses now, so I've had to get them this week for the first time. They make a big difference, but I just wanted to say that so people didn't, don't get distracted later when I'm putting them on and off. Second thing, a little bit of editorial comment, because we don't have time for it on this show, but um, the new chair of the Parliament, Federal Parliament's Intelligence Committee is a little snot named James Patterson. In our Parliament, we have a, an experienced intelligence analyst named Andrew Wilkie, the guy who led the fight to get uh, Julian Assange freed. Andrew Wilkie is not just experienced, he's moral and he's the guy that stood up against the Iraq war intelligence tw 20 years ago, right? He should be the head of that committee. Why is this little snot James Patterson head of the committee? Because he's a Wolverine, one of these punks that's loyal to the United States who go around putting stickers on the walls of parliament, right? I have to say that because people keep wanting to think that the CCP controls Australia Right, and wonder, wonder about our position, take a hard look at what actually goes on in this place. So that's my editorial comment on mm. that. Yeah, so on to the first topic. Morrison swimming naked, tide turns on Watchgate. Of course, um, that headline is in reference to the famous saying by Warren Buffett that it's only when the tide goes out in the financial markets that you see who's swimming, swimming naked. This well, is a political tide. That's right. Uh, last week we reported on the release of the Maddox law firm uh, inquiry that the government requested to find out if there was any wrongdoing by Christine Holgate when she purchased rewards in the form of Cartier watches for four executives that did the deal of the decade, forcing the banks to cough up for the financial services that Australia Post is providing across the country. And as we reported then, there was no wrongdoing. Um, of course, that had been released uh, in combination with a slew of new tabloid media attacks and right ahead of a, the Australia Day long weekend to try to keep the whole thing under wraps. And Morrison was evidently trying to uh, get ahead of events here by putting this out because obviously everyone knew we would make a big song and dance, other institutions would make a big song and dance like the lo local licensed post office groups and so forth. Um, but it really backfired. Uh, and not only did it not go unnoticed over that long weekend, uh, there's been an absolute rush of prominent figures in the media defending Christine Holgate, and this is now breaking the scandal wide open. So one of those um, most prominently was an article by Janet uh, Albrechtson in The Australian on the 30th of January called The Darker and Deeper Side to the Holgate Affair. And, she, and this was an absolutely scathing, withering attack on Morrison in particular um, because this does expose him big time. Um, she said, the Maddox report doesn't give the Prime Minister cover. It is a fig leaf so small that it exposes a pedestrian liberal willing to destroy a person's career to market his personal brand as a populist rather than act as a thoughtful and sensible leader. 
and she went on to go through in great detail analysing the report, um, revealing that the worst the lawyers could find is that the purchase of the watches was, quote unquote, inconsistent with what was expected. Of course, this is based on um, the so-called pub test. It's something politicians just invent for their own convenient purposes. And as she said, you know, very accurately, this whole saga inadvertently lays bare some dark truths about a society that departs from the rule of law and allows those in power to apply fuzzy, unknowable and arbitrary rules for their own purposes. Um, now, at the same time, you had Stephen Jones coming out on the same day, actually, in the Australian Financial Review, this was reported. Um, so the Labor Party uh, began to move away from the um, allegations against Christine, even though they were the ones that initiated it. So they uh, started to distance themselves from this. Well, he said, it's, I would say they're rushing to the exit on this. <laughs> yeah. not, not just starting, they're rushing. To, they, they, they do not want to be left holding the can, which they started actually. Yeah, so he said it's monumental incompetence that Frydenberg and Scott Morrison have destroyed trust with corporate Australia over their confected outrage at waste by senior executives at Australia Post, even though, as I said, they raised it and the AFR made that point. Uh, and then the pile-on began. And also Sky News reported on it too. Um, yeah, the, outs the Outsiders crew um, on, on Sundays. I, I, was, I was laughing when I saw this because they, they teed off Janet Elbrickson's article and they said, yeah, this was total overreaction, etc. What they said on the show was true, except they tried to claim they'd thought so all along. But they, like the rest of the media, were piling on Christine Holgate straight after Scott Morrison's attack on her back in October, right? So they're trying to rewrite history a bit. But it's an example of how quickly the tide has turned here. The, we, we embarked on a fight to get that report released at the start of, this, at the, start of the year, Elisa, right? We said the three R's. Release the report, replace the board, reinstate Christine Holgate. We didn't know if it was, would be possible. The government gave in and released the report. And on the back of that, once people got to see not just how the report could find no actual wrongdoing, it had to go to such ridiculous lengths to contrive a, the one negative finding against her. right? And the way they did that, which, which uh, Albrechtson dissects beautifully, people saw this is how government actually works, right? Um, and the backlash has been huge. And it's there's lots of reverberations uh, going on here. But, you know, let me just remind viewers why we keep talking about this. Because it's not about Christine Holgate. Even though she's an extraordinary person who did an extraordinary good job as the CEO of Australia Post. It's about a big issue here of what, how, what sort of government do we want? How do we run, um, you know, the, the services that a government needs to provide, such as a postal service, right? And... Should politicians, you know, like the like this exposes the way Labor and Liberal work in this really corrupt way, should they have this power to be able to destroy people like this for their own agendas? And then it shows what those agendas are. And one of the ones that we've gone through in this uh, alert service is the privatisation agenda, right, which is definitely something that the Liberals have pushed for a long time, but so is Labor, right? The Labor appointed key pe people to... Um, uh, to Australia Post Board to try and privatise it, right? So that's an agenda that she um, stymied mm. just by making Australia Post profitable again, yeah. right? The second agenda, though, is we've always thought is probably the biggest one, the, the real issue here. She proved that Australia Post's future lies as a provider of financial services and improving that and making the banks pay up for the infrastructure to do it, 
she not only stepped on the bank's toes, but she, she fueled the cause of organisations like us, the unions, other groups that have long said Australia Post should be its own bank. Mm. Because then a bank using Australia Post's extensive branch of post offices and owned by the government could finally force the private banks to compete. Nothing else has succeeded since we privatised the Commonwealth Bank. This is the way to do it. And she proved it would work beautifully. Right? And that's really upset the agendas and we think is what's behind this. And in the next segment we're going to talk more about you know, why that's a really big deal because the nature of banking as we know it is changing dramatically. Now people um, should absolutely get involved in this campaign because it might seem like an obscure side issue but as you've just gone through there Robbie, this brings, and sometimes it's curious things like this that can change history actually where <clears throat> something really gets to the nub of the issue which people um, you know, take into um, you know their their soul and fight for, and get a, if you get a breakthrough on it, it can change a multitude of other things. And actually, Lisa, I've got some breaking news here that um, we, that adds to the picture, because uh, ABC um, has released this morning uh, an analysis. The headline is: As Christine Holgate gave four Australia Post staff a Cartier watch, at least nine hundred public servants received larger bonuses. And they go through, and we'll put this, this chart up on the screen, and I'll, there's a few things I want to say about it, but they go through how the same year that Christine Holgate awarded four executives for the deal of the century, these executives stared the banks down and made them cough up. And it saved Australia Post and it saved the licensed post offices. And for that, she could have been justified in giving them $50,000, $100,000 each. She gave them a $5,000 watch each, right? For that deal, she, got, she gave them a $5,000 watch. That same year, public servants approved by the ministers in the government, 900 of them and maybe 1,700 of them received bonuses bigger than the value of those watches. So, and then look at the chart and look where this level of bonuses peaked. It peaked under the last Labor government. So the two hypocrites... Kimberly Kitching and Anthony Albanese, who made the biggest deal of this in Parliament, carrying on about this waste of taxpayers' money because she gave these watches, when they were last in government, executive performance bonuses to public servants who are not like Australia Post allowed to function commercially, right? They only just do their job, blew out that much. And these sanctimonious hypocrites, it's sickening the way they then turned around and attacked her. What it proves from both them and the government what the attack on Christine has nothing to do with watches, nothing to do with the public desk, nothing to do with public perception. Mm -hmm. It's all to do with she got in their way yep. and they've smashed her. But they did not anticipate the backlash that we've been part of creating here and it's turned, blowing up in their face. So this is an example mm. that when you're on the side of truth, um, you can turn the tide and we have to follow this through to the end because we have to get her reinstated and we have to make sure that what she proved comes true. Australia Post should become a bank to take on the power of these corrupt big fours who have this such a stranglehold over Australian politics. Now, you can contact us to um, take our flyer on this or multiple flyers we've issued to your local post office and get them on this bandwagon too. And also contact your member of parliament, particularly if they're a National Party MP, because yes. they're from the regional areas. They can force a shift within the coalition government if we really push it. Uh, and do call in for a copy of the Australian Alert Service and read this article that's out this week on the bipartisan plot to privatise Australia Post. So Which we'll take... shows you, before, just before the break, Elisa, 
um, so that I can put on the screen. It shows you one of the problems you hear where, where the role of these four liberal, top liberals who are on the current board of Australia Post it identifies who they are. And the, this is a rogues gallery, the fact that, that they can stack a board of a government service so clearly just with political mates, mm. who then are the ones who turned around and stabbed her in the back or threw her under the bus, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and I'll just add that it was revealed overnight as well that so far the government has spent $350,000 on trying to replace Christine Holgate where she should still be in that job, so it's so, a complete waste. So for $20,000 worth of watches, they've spent, we know they've spent over $100,000 on the lawyer's report. They've spent $350,000 recruiting a replacement. What a joke. And they claim they're concerned about taxpayers' money. So we'll be right back after this break for a discussion on the future of banking. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're now discussing the future of banking, but not as we know it. Now, this Australia Post fight that we just talked about, and particularly the fight for a, a, a banking service that is available to all Australians, um, rather than the exclusive system we have now, which is getting worse because so many bank branches and ATMs are closing, um, is taking place in the context of the takedown of banking as we know it. And in fact, Elisa, as we're going to go through, this is the real great reset that everyone's talking about. It is. Forget, a lot of what you heard is, is not as important as what we're about to go through. Yeah. Um, now, so there's been um, a campaign over recent, well, really <laughs> centuries and decades, but the pinnacle has been reached in these recent few years um, where what is being destroyed here are postal banks and Robbie mentioned last week on the show we did a uh, survey. The number of postal banks globally is actually amazing and there's mm -hmm. been a number of new ones that have been established in places from the UK to China to France and Italy just in the last couple of decades. Um, so postal banks, national banks, state banks, public banks, community banks and commercial banks these uh, kinds of banks are all being deliberately destroyed and white-anted. Um, we've written before about um, and extensively about Australia's own national bank, the original Commonwealth Bank and the takedown of it. We've also talked about the takedown of the state banks. We've written about that in the Australian Alert Service through a series over decades of audit commissions, budget reviews, financial inquiries, the process of outsourcing everything which is destroying not only banking but our economy as a whole. Um, public banks, um, you know, we don't have any of them anymore. In the US there's a big move to reinstate public banks. In California they're pushing that. In LA uh, there's a public banking act that's been put up so that this would make it possible for states across the entire USA. The private banks, the reason that they got rid of public banks because the private banks succeeded in brainwashing everybody that somehow it was unfair and illegitimate to have, for them to have to compete with a public option. Yeah. Right? And it never, that's just such the biggest bogus argument because once they got rid of that having to compete with a public option, they just went crazy mm. and we're dealing with the consequences of it. And community banks, um, you know, we're, that's kind of unheard of here, but they have a lot of that in Europe and negative interest rates has had a big impact. A lot of them have shut down. Richard Werner from the banking, he's a banking expert from Oxford University, has talked about how the remaining 1,400 savings and community banks have been wiped out with this wave of negative interest rates and that's been the backbone of local lending up to 90% of the credit to small and medium enterprises. 
for a country like Germany. Um, and so commercial banks I want to talk about now. With the repeal of Glass-Steagall, which kept commercial banks separated, completely separated from investment banks in 1999, um, what inevitably happened was a, a pressure towards larger, more concentrated banks. Yep. Um, because all banks could uh, engage in speculation, this was created a drive towards being more sophisticated because you could make bigger profits through speculation, through trading in derivatives. Deposits were no longer the most valued thing, which of course are the basis of lending. Well, and that, that's what a commercial bank is, Elisa, a bank that takes deposits. That's right. right. And they, under the Glass-Steagall restriction, they were not allowed to, to speculate and engage in the activities of investment banks. Um, but when they got rid of that, what's happened is um, essentially commercial banks have given way to the investment banking model. And that's what we've got, including in Australia. Our big four banks are less commercial banks than they are big, dangerous, derivatives-riddled investment banks. Mm -hmm. And yet because they have deposits, they expect to be bailed out yep. if they run into trouble, which is why we need to bring Glass-Steagall back, of course. But since 1999, in the last 30 years, almost 5,000 US banks disappeared. So since the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Um, so that just goes to show that higher level of concentration of the banking sector into too big to fail banks. After 2008, 2008 and the crash, of course, they tried to so-called rectify this too big to fail problem. But the Bank for International Settlements solution of so-called resolution regimes, which would allow banks to um, confiscate depositors' money and certain investments to keep the bank fluid and liquid um, actually made Failing. the too big to problem, uh, too big to fail problem much, much worse. And there's 17 countries in Europe which we've documented that have uh, seen uh, various types of resolutions take place. And in most of those cases, even though there's been bail-ins and people's money has been confiscated, it has ended up resulting also in bailouts and eventually where that, that entity has been taken over by a larger bank. So the larger banks are swallowing up these smaller ones and the problem's getting worse. Uh, the other issue is central bank digital currencies, which a lot of governments such as our own have said if a digital currency is introduced, they wouldn't maintain a cash system as well. So you're ridding uh, the nation of cash infrastructure. Quantitative easing, it has been suggested, would be conducted through central bank accounts. So you wouldn't need for people to even have their own bank account, but they would have an account at the central bank. So that would be bypassing commercial banks. And it's also been suggested that government fiscal policy should also be conducted in this way through central bank digital currency spending, um, which would take place through investment banks. So the, in June 2020, the Philadelphia Federal Reserve wrote in a paper, uh, Central Banking for All, it was called, that commercial banking, because of these new procedures, would become obsolete. And I already mentioned negative interest rates and the effect that that had. And those two combined, just to give you a sample of how that works, Daniel Masters, the former head of energy trading at JP Morgan Trace, uh, two quotes from him, he said, we are going into a new paradigm where central banks issue CBDCs and commercial banks cease to exist, number one. Number two, he said, there are very compelling reasons for central banks to issue their own digital currencies. More importantly, if you take physical money out of the system, you can charge negative interest rates. And Elisa, before the break, just quickly, when we talk about central banks, don't make the mistake of thinking we're talking about governments. 
Central banks are independent of yes. governments. They're their own entity in their own right. They coordinate globally, and it's a it's a system. It's it's you know it's it's a dictatorial system outside of democratic control. We'll explain it more after this break. Welcome back to the Citizens Report, where we're discussing the future of banking, but not as we know it, for sure. Um, and as we were just talking about, central banks are independent, so we're not talking about national banking directing the economy for the benefit of the common good. And in fact, if you go back and study the history of the founding of the Bank for International Settlements, the central bank for central banks, um, the vision was always to create an entity exclusive of governments, outside yep. of, on top of <clears throat> governments that could dictate policy globally. And one of the people who first blew the whistle on the real agenda um, was the great Jack Lang, former New South Wales Premier in the 1930s, in his book The Big Bust, describes how the, the Governor of the Bank of England, Montague Norman, was setting up that system, and that's what we've got today. Exactly, he was a key part of it through the Bank of England. Now, a key part of that shift uh, occurred in August 2019 at the Jackson Hole gathering of central bankers, which was laid out quite explicitly. Mark Carney, the former head of the Bank of England, laid out the central bank digital currency plan globally, and uh, the BlackRock hedge fund laid out a proposal for monetary regime change where... Um, government fiscal policy would be handed over to the central banks. Which to... means government spending. The way governments spend money, central banks would control. So this is a dramatic shift point, which you know people are generally not aware of, but it's going along behind the scenes. Another shift point was the September 2019 repo crisis, the repurchase funding arrangements that provide daily liquidity to the banks. Um, in 2008, the main bailout mechanism used was the so-called discount window where the Fed does its lending to deposit-taking banks. Um, but the primary dealer credit facility was introduced after 2008 where the Fed lends to primary dealers, which are not deposit-taking banks. They're investment banks, securities dealers and trading houses. And those are the banks that receive repo loans, which generally were used just once a day. But since... Um, 2019 and particularly it got much, much worse in March uh, last year when the COVID crisis struck, um, they began to make multiple offerings every day on various term loans. Um, JP Morgan Chase was proposing a standing repurchase agreement facility that the Fed would basically have this new permanent bailout facility um, and take the banks out of that daily liquidity lending so the banks could focus on investing in derivatives and put their spare cash not into that lending market to commercial banks, yeah. but to make money out of speculation. Um, now, this is all key, as you said earlier, to the Great Reset Agenda, which smothers funding to the real economy from both governments and commercial, um, you know, turning deposits into lending, that kind of normal process that we all take for granted. Um, and, of course, Mark Carney uh, is, the, is a key figure in that. He's created, of course, he's now the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance, but through things like enforcing mandatory disclosure of climate-related financial risks, new prudential banking regulations, central bank-run green bonds, new green investment standards and green IMF lending criteria, they're trying to block off the flow of funds into the real economy to get real industry and growth. And even if you accept their argument that you need to act on climate change, Elisa, if you 
if you let central banks dictate who gets funding and, and how and use excuses like climate change to starve sectors of the economy of funding, um, they will use it on many other things as well. That's right. Right, And then they control the world economy instead of national governments accountable to, pub to their public. It's a control mechanism for everything then top down. We've run out of time, so contact us for more information. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. Join us next week. Thank you.